Jets, 90s kids, and early otters, it's Sam and Rachel's Generation Gap. I am Sam. I'm Rachel. And we are a real-life couple with what you would call a little bit of an age difference. Mm -hmm. And each week on the podcast, we introduce each other to a topic that was very near and dear to us from our own generation in an effort to bridge said Gap. Rachel, <laughs> how you doing? I'm good. Sam, how are you today? You know, I'm Jumanjtastic. Whoa. What about you? I'm Mannequinalistic. Great. I guess we're already introducing our topics. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, this week's topics, we are talking, of course, about the 1995 family film classic Jumanji about a board game that brings animals to life. <laughs> and we're talking about the 1987 movie Mannequin that brings mannequins to life. Well, one mannequin, but we'll get into <laughs> it. Um, but there was a time, Rachel, if you can believe it or not, there was a time in our lives where we didn't know as much about the animals that are summoned from a roll of the dice and a Kim Cattrall who was Egyptian. <laughs> yeah, I can't even remember that time. It seems so long ago, but there was a time when we were in, in the, the dark. dark. Rachel, oh, dang, I can't see a darn thing in here. Oh my God, it must be time for In the Dark. That's right, it's time for In the Dark, the segment of the show where Sam and Rachel quiz each other just to find out how much we know about this week's topics. Wow, that was good, Sam. How much do you know about the movie Mannequin? Well, I know very much about the movie Mannequin. It stars Robin Williams. Uh, it's a movie where he is a robot mm -hmm. for a family. Mm -hmm. uh, he kind of works his way into their lives, but he cannot become human. Wow. That is so close. Yeah. But not at all what the movie Mannequin is about. No, I believe that is Bicentennial Man is the movie I described. Oh, I thought you were mixing uh, like a few different movies. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, he pretends to be someone else. That's Mrs. Doubtfire. And he <laughs> pretends to be a robot. Uh, he's something. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. I just Googled Bicentennial Man. Okay. I, I typed in B-I-C. It's the first thing that comes up. Well, that's because computers are listening to yeah, us. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, do you know anything about the movie Mannequin? If you had to guess what would it, what it was about? Honestly, um, I have nothing to judge this on. Just that, like, I was like, oh, I want to do Jumanji. And you're like, oh, then we'll do Mannequin Jumanji. That's perfect. <laughs> so, uh, I my guess is it's a uh, movie about a board game. Awesome. Yeah. And are there any well-known actors you might recognize in Mannequin? Other than Robin Williams? <laughs> right. Um, I'm going to say, ugh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Rob Reiner and <laughs> Herbie Hancock. <laughs> Last week you said Carl Reiner, uh, which, Wait. which is Rob Reiner's father. Oh. Yeah. I guess I didn't know there were two. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. kind of like Rob and Carl Reiner. We aren't are we? very similar. Well, Rob <laughs> Reiner is like famous for Princess Bride, which is right as we know one of the greats. Seen it, uh, but and then Carl Reiner, yeah. Anyway, all right. So okay, that was all completely wrong, and I cannot wait for you to see this. Anything movie. else I need to look <sighs> How stupid? About iconic say? songs 
From Mannequin? Well, do you, uh, when do you think Mannequin came out? Uh, 1986. Okay. Um, Featuring such songs as Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. This is fun because you're completely in the dark, which is <laughs> this rare. Is the, this is the topic that I know absolutely zero about. This is so fun. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. Awesome. And on the other hand, I believe you've seen the movie Jumanji. Is that true? Yes, but I also am confused about it because it, I feel like there's been three Jumanjis. Okay. Interesting. Um do you know anything? What do you know about the movie Jumanji? So it's about a board game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and My it, kind does, of movie. it does have Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And, and Herbie Hancock, actually. <laughs> Herbie makes Hancock. a small appearance. Um, yeah, famous Eagles frontrunner, <laughs> Herbie Hancock. Frontrunner. Um, frontman. Um yeah, I don't. I can't remember who else is in it because what's happening is I also saw the modern Jumanji, mm. and that has The Rock in it. So I, I am a little confused, to be honest. But okay. I know that it was scarier than I thought it was going to be. Okay, so a horror movie about a board game. <laughs> yeah, and it's like a board game that like comes to life. Okay, in what way? Is there a specific like? Mm kind of thing that the board game does. I remember if they get pulled into the board game or if the board game creatures come out into the real world. And what kind of creatures are we talking? Oh, ghouls, goblins, gophers. (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) The usual ghosts. Yeah, yeah, Um, for sure. mm -hmm. No, I don't, yeah. Big snake heads. Okay, great. And Sheila, the spider. Okay, yeah, we recently rewatched Lord of the Rings, and as y'all might know, Rachel loves to call Shelob, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was her name. Um, great. Uh, you don't know what comes out of the board game. That's pretty funny. Um, a, a monster, a creature. Uh, who is who does Robin Williams play? He he's one of the people playing the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Right? I don't know. I don't know, but he's like older. Maybe he's the dad. Oh, and then the creature's like running around the neighborhood? What creatures? Ghosts, goblins, ghouls, gophers. I I can't tell you if you're right or not, <laughs> uh, but there is someone who can, and that's future Sam and Rachel. Rachel. There were less ghouls, goblins, gophers, and ghosts. Here's than I the funny part about be. that list is that gophers is by far the closest <laughs> to what actually comes true. out of the board game. Yeah. yeah. Also, I love how much referencing of Herbie Hancock we now do on this podcast. We reference, we're doing our own kind of, we're trying to make Herbie Hancock happen. I think, <laughs> Absolutely. What's going on. Yeah. Keep an eye on salmonrachelcomedy.com <laughs> for your sweet Herbie Hancock merch. We don't have a website. <laughs> You make websites for a living. How do we not have a website? Yeah, sorry about that. I'm, yeah. I've been really busy. Uh, all right. Well, we've well, been watching movie after movie. This know. is such a fun one because, as Gen Gappers know, um, almost every weekend in the dark, Sam knows something about my topic. And this is the first time I know something about yours, and you were completely in the dark about the movie Mannequin. I kept waiting when I was watching the movie Mannequin to be like, oh, this is from Mannequin. Right. Never happened. Never had seen it. It was really a true first. I introduced you to it, which is really fun for me. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, listening to it in the dark, 
I was right about some things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were very close on most of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you, which do you want to start with this week? It seemed like the momentum was with Mannequin. Ugh. And is it always? <laughs> My friends, Mannequin is a romantic comedy from the 80s starring Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall. And the story is about Jonathan, an unhappy and unsuccessful artist who finds both happiness and success when one of his mannequins comes alive and they fall in love. Isn't that nice? It is nice. Um, And, you know, you might think that sounds like a weird plot to a movie. And I think you'd be correct. Yeah. It is an a weird movie, but uh-huh. I loved it. I did love that movie. Yeah, I think our main takeaway from this watch for you and rewatch for me is that it's a pretty good movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to lie. We're going to get to Jumanji, but I think going in, I was like, my thoughts were, Mannequin is going to be unwatchable yeah. and really bad, and Jumanji is probably going to be pretty good, yeah. and I actually think it was the opposite. Absolutely. Mannequin yeah. was way better than we expected, and Jumanji was fine. Yeah. 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 Um, well, here's a little more about the plot. Uh, so Jonathan Switcher is played by Andrew McCarthy, and he's like down and out because he loves art and creating and that keeps getting in the way of him keeping a job i loved how there was that like (laughs) montage of like him having these like dumb jobs that he was doing too artily like decorating the pizza really carefully or (laughs) trimming the hedges into like a bunny shape yeah everything was turning into sculptures and Mm -hmm. therefore he kept getting fired Um, But he finally lands a job as a window dresser in a big department store, which is a very 1980s kind of job. Yeah. Uh, And the mannequin that he created comes alive. And the reason is because she becomes inhabited by the spirit of a woman from Egyptian, from like ancient Egypt. Seems like she was like an Egyptian princess, maybe. (laughs) Right. And she like wished for another life. And so... Thousands and thousands of years later, she becomes a mannequin. But she did live throughout that time. She'd like come to life as different artists' muse. Yeah, she kind of comments throughout the movie. It seems like she's basically been time traveling and like having all of these adventures in other people's bodies and loving it and very happy that she had left her life in ancient Egypt where she was just going to like marry and just be a woman. And Mm -hmm. that sucks. Now, you'd think that, like, that, like, what we're describing sounds like such an interesting premise, but the movie is not about her time travel. (laughs) It's not about her different lives. It's mainly just about her life as a mannequin. (laughs) I will say, I think this movie is mainly about clothes and dancing. It's fun. It's fun. (laughs) Um, Another thing in the magic of this world is that no one else can see her alive. So everyone thinks that. Andrew McCarthy is just like in love with a mannequin. And so obviously most people like think he's crazy or judge him because he's like in love with a mannequin, Um, except for his stereotypical 80s sassy gay colleague named Hollywood, who wears wacky sunglasses indoors all the time. Uh, He seems more accepting. He's like, you know what? You do you. Love, love is love. I love that. I love how there's like this kind of like cultural mapping of like, (laughs) you know, Hollywood, like, I'm not going to judge you, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And actually like this movie has a ton of like acceptance of, uh, you know, people being eccentric, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is like really the message that this movie has. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, 
you know, it's it's the weird things about us that make us who we are. It's like the creativity right. behind everything. It is kind of like funny because this is like before well, I'm going to get into like how uh, the, the, the representation of gay characters we'll talk about later, but sure. like in general, yeah, I think that this movie is, uh, <laughs> it kind of hints at like <laughs> gay people. What's next? loving mannequins <laughs> and it's like calm down people. yeah yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, anyway uh, yeah so that's kind of the magic of this world is that she only comes alive for him and when they're together they have this great relationship and what and then if any other human being walks in the room she is a mannequin again and he's like wait she was just alive and mm-hmm. so that's a little bit of a frustrating part for him yeah really yeah. frustrating yeah yeah All right, well, I'll get into just some, like, quick facts and history about the movie Mannequin. So, this movie came out in 1987. Ooh, I was so close. Yeah, what did you say, 85? 86, yeah. I feel like, to me, this is just, like, peak movie time for my generation. Mm. Um, In fact, I was going to get into this later, but, like, other successful movies from 1987 include... Dirty Dancing, yeah, Three Men and a Baby, mm-hmm. The Secret of My Success, which is uh, Michael J. Fox, Moonstruck, mm-hmm. and like other movies that came out that year that maybe weren't as successful, but like I think are iconic for the time is like Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, that's Can't, a huge film in my family. Yeah, yeah, Can't Buy Me Love, The Lost Boys, mm-hmm. and Princess Bride. What? So like it was a really big year for movies that maybe didn't have commercial success but then gained a cult following Mm -hmm. i feel that way about lost boys princess bride and this movie Mm -hmm. probably well actually not i'll get into it so uh surprisingly i did not know this this movie is inspired by pygmalion oh which now makes sense so it's like in greek mythology Pygmalion was a sculptor in one in one story. Pygmalion was a sculptor who fell in love with a statue that he had carved. Oh, oh, I was thinking of the play Pygmalion, which is the straight play that My Fair Lady is based off of. Oh, the rain. You're talking about the Greek myth of Pygmalion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Which is like, I feel like, yeah, a lot of movies, a lot of romantic comedies are inspired by either Greek mythology or Shakespeare. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so like a lot of the 80s movies that we talk about on this podcast, it gained popularity through a cult following. Um, the budget for this movie was under $8 million, mm-hmm. Um, But it actually did have a lot of commercial success. In the box office, it made 42.7 in the U.S. alone. Is that a lot for a movie? Million. Well, if you compare it to the 7.9 it took to make it, that's pretty good mm. right uh <laughs> it received one academy award nod uh nomination for the original song nothing's gonna stop us now by starship nothing's gonna stop us now is that how it goes yeah but we can make it if we hold too hard are you not remembering it and, and we, we can build this world together, everyone. me and mannequin. <laughs> we are gonna stop, stop us. us. Nothing's gonna stop Classic us 80s now. Song. 
That song got really popular. It reached number one in both the U.S. and in the U.K. I That is so surprising to me. Now, when I was watching it, I obviously recognized that song, but I didn't know it came from Mannequin. That's that's it's wild. It's kind of unclear. It doesn't seem like it was made specifically for the movie, which makes me confused about how nominations for movies work musically. Mm. Like, I don't know. Uh, but if you are surprised by that, I want you to guess a, another huge hit at this time that this song was competing with. Um, it would be the Journey song, Don't Stop Believing." Close. <laughs> Rick Astley's never gonna give you up. <laughs> now you'd think I just Rick rolled you, but this is the actual answer. Now I have a real question here <laughs> from your millennial husband. Okay, mm-hmm. and I need you to be honest with me. Yeah, always. Did you ever listen to that Rick Astley song before Rick rolling? I don't think I like put it on for pleasure, but I certainly knew the song and like the Rick rolling started. I remember it started when I was living in Boston in like the early two thousands was like when that started. But this movie, I mean this movie, this song had already been around for many, many years. Well, I know that. Um, I just didn't know. I definitely didn't have a Rick Astley album. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, one thing I noticed was that this movie had a lot of actors in it. We we were surprised. Like every time someone came on the screen, we were like, oh, we were like Estelle Getty, and we were like James Spader. You know, <laughs> like it was surprising. It, it actually had a lot of movie uh, actors who were at the peak of their celebrity and careers. Like, and this movie was like momentum for them. Whereas, you know, initially when we were talking about this movie and we were thinking it was probably not very successful or whatever, it actually it just surprised us in a lot of ways. So. Andrew McCarthy is like the main character and he was like one of the big actors of this time. He was a member of the Brat Pack, right? Which was like a group of popular young actors who all appeared together in a bunch of teen movies like coming of age films like um, The Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire. So he specifically, he was in St. Elmo's Fire. He was in Pretty in Pink. And Weekend at Bernie's, which right after researching this, I turned to Sam and I was like, can we watch Weekend at Bernie's? I like barely (laughs) know that movie and I think it'd be fun to watch. Yeah, well, that'd be good. We'll do uh, Weekend at Bernie's from your generation. And what's the movie where they prop up a corpse from my generation? Hmm. I'll have to get back to you. All right. (laughs) Kim Cattrall stars as Emmy, the mannequin who is from ancient Egypt. Classic Um, Egyptian name, (laughs) Emmy. Now, obviously, most people know Kim Cattrall as Samantha from Sex and the City. But I know her from, uh, and you must YouTube this, listeners. There's Kim Cattrall scatting. Oh, my God. I've if seen you've this ever video. seen this video of Kim Cattrall, just like somebody's playing stand up bass and her just being like, scoop it bow. It's her bow, husband bow. or partner yeah, is playing bass. And yeah, I think Page Seven Podcast maybe turned me on to that video. Is oh that possible? Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. That video is ridiculous. You definitely stop this. Go Google that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I feel like we all knew her from Sex and the City, but Sex and the City came out so much later. And in the 80s, she had she was rock and rolling. She was like she was in Starsky and Hutch. She was in Big Trouble in Little China. She was in The Incredible Hulk. I, I also thought it was fun that prior to filming, because she plays a mannequin, she had to spend six weeks posing for a sculptor who created 
uh, what, six different mannequin designs that look like her with different expressions. And the crazy thing is that that guy fell in love with the mannequin <laughs> he was creating. That's right. And they're in love and they're married. You know? <laughs> and I'm fine with and that. And I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, Estelle Getty is in this movie. Yes. She plays the owner of the department store. For anyone out there who doesn't know, maybe Ada, our youngest fan yeah. of the show, uh, Estelle Getty stars in The Golden Girls. So it was super exciting to see her in this. And this movie was shot while... Golden Girls was like peak, like mm-hmm. prime time. So she was also like, as I said, at the peak of her career. And I love the way he gets the job working for Estelle Getty is that he just like saves her life. And so <laughs> yeah. she feels like a, an, a debt of gratitude and gives him a job. Yeah. They're like hanging a big sign outside the store and it goes awry and it almost like hits her. It's so like all the department store. It's very on this podcast. We talk a lot about how like malls were big in the eighties. <laughs> like this, this one goes a step further, which is it's not just malls. It's the age of the fancy department store. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll get into that some more in a moment. Um, James Spader is also in this movie and he's fantastic in this yes. movie. He's like the evil character and he's so funny but he's like the evil like underling right the evil underling and in this movie um i know i had this in my notes somewhere i just thought it was funny that um like what he's doing is he works for estelle getty but he's trying to ruin his own department store that he works for because then the competing department store will give him this big promotion and he'll move over and that is the exact same plot as in 30, 13 going on 30, Jennifer Garner's character oh, really? is doing the exact same thing. She's like evilly taking down her magazine so she can go get an editor job at, at the, the competing magazine. Yeah, the, the competing magazine is going to acquire the old one, right? Um, no, just make them go out of business by stealing their oh, ideas and I stealing see. their people. Okay. Yeah. And 13 going on 30 is obviously one of my favorite movies. So I thought that was fun. Uh, there's also this guy, G.W. Bailey plays like the captain who is hunting down Andrew McCarthy and the mannequin. He's just like, they're up to no good. Oh, just a bumbling cop. And Sam like hated him. And I was Hate like, him. I know him from police Academy. And he apparently was like on mash. That was like what he was known for. Okay. Yeah. You, yeah. I've never seen police Academy and I've never seen MASH. Yeah. <laughs> um, Police Academy, we've talked about doing on the podcast. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Hollywood Montrose, the stereotypical, sassy, 80s gay colleague, best friend, sidekick, etc., uh, is played by Meshach Taylor, uh, who was known at the time for his role on the TV show Designing Women. Um, he's also one of the only actors in this cast to return for the sequel movie, which is Mannequin 2 on the move. Oh, my god! Which we did not watch, and it's apparently really bad. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, you know, there's not, like, a ton of crazy, like, hijinks from this movie. Like, I when we researched Teen Wolf, like, there was some really fun stuff. This movie, uh, there's not that much, but I, I wanted to chat a little bit about the music. So... Nothing's going to stop us now. It was nominated for not only an Academy Award, but also a Grammy and a Golden Globe. People loved this song. There's also this really great song in it. Um, Do you dream about me? Mm-hmm. 
in the nighttime when I close your eyes. And they play that during this really fun montage in the movie when they try on all the outfits in the store and all they, they play all these different characters. And it kind of goes into like the movie trope of like, look at all the fun you can have after hours in a department store. Like dreams can come true. You can, you can go on a bike or like fly. What is she like? Fly on a glider, on a glider inside of a mall and like ax out rock music videos and like all this fun stuff. Uh, when I was just like trying to remind myself of key moments of the movie, I was like YouTubing some stuff about Mannequin. And every most of the videos were like best dance scene in a movie, best movie montage. Like it was just in compilations filled with those. So yeah, I think those are the the moments people remember from that movie for sure. Um, there's their opening song. What you and I were like, is this the bangles? Like it sounded like the bangles, but we were like, why is it not the song walk like an Egyptian? <laughs> right. And so I Googled this cause I was like, what's going on? It wasn't the bangles. I actually don't know what song it was, but I'm not the only person to have, we're not the only people to have this thought process. I'm sure. There's like a whole Reddit thread of like, what, 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 where was the song? I could have sworn that Walk Like an Egyptian was in this movie, but I rewatched it and it's not in there. Like people were like up mm. in arms. So we weren't alone. I also like love how there's a moment where music comes on and because Emmy, the mannequin is like a time traveling ancient Egyptian. She's like, oh my God, music. Like she loves music and she's like, where do they hide all the musicians? Because it's coming out of a stereo. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just the synth, the synth throughout this movie is insane. Like, it is just, when they're walking through the mall, to me, it's iconic. Like, I was like, oh, I remember this synth so much. And you were just like, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um my notes, I just have like some thoughts about like watching this movie now, which, oh, yeah. you know, I'm happy to have you jump in on as well. Uh, overall, as we mentioned, this movie is so much better than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah. I just assumed it was going to be terrible and it was well crafted. Something about just like the way we handle our main character of him being like this artist who like doesn't give up and he kind of fails upwards into a position where he actually is very good and is helping everybody around him. Like kind of this lesson of like, you just got to find your fit. Yeah. Um, is, is really compelling. Like, I feel like that's like the heart of the movie that keeps driving it forward where you're like all these mannequin shenanigans. Like how many times do people like come around the corner and then he's like kissing the mannequin and everyone's like, most people are like, your secret safe with me. Everyone's like, because they like him so much, they're willing to hide his secret, which is um, something that uh, probably doesn't age well going forward. If you extrapolate that upon other creative geniuses that have to do things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I wrote that same thing down, which is just this idea of, uh, failing upwards. Yeah. It's just, that's a, that's a common movie trope. It makes me think of how to succeed in, in business without really trying. Right. Yeah. Music what are, man. Music man. Yeah. Um, 
Forrest Gump is like the clearest example of somebody failing upwards I can think of, you know, where it's like somebody's just like their innocence, their like way of being, the fact that they don't understand what they're doing allows them to approach it in this new fresh angle that is valued by everyone who's around. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, the other, since we're already talking about movie trips, <laughs> there's the other ones I was thinking about were, was sassy gay best friend. Oh my of course. gosh. Yeah. And then there's literally a scene where someone is saying something and they put their finger to their lips and they're like, don't talk. And they just kiss them. Like how uh, just stopping someone from talking with a finger. Mm -hmm. That's somehow romantic. And then a kiss. Yeah. And then a kiss. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And like this movie is indicative of its time. This is something we talk about a lot on the Gen Gap pod. Uh, it's not every Wednesday at nine. <laughs> I wish, uh, this movie, you know, it's not about malls like so much else that we've talked about. Pop princesses, check it out. Season one, but it is department stores and, you know, big Bloomingdale. I, it made me think of like the Bloomingdale's display on Christmas time mm-hmm. in New York city is very much, a really big thing like that's a thing that tourists do mm-hmm. but that was a thing in general was like really incredible competition between the department stores and like what would their window display was because that's how you got people in the door yeah i think what you're describing is more indicative of a location than it is a time in a place though, mm-hmm. right or i guess it's more of a place than a time uh, because like New York City, it's like those department stores are all next to each other. You're competing for foot traffic. If you go to Minneapolis, I'm sure those department stores are far away. <laughs> and they don't really need a display in the front window because you have to drive there because everything's so cold. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. Well, I think the guy who created this um, movie, what's his name? Ma- Michael Gottlieb he got the idea because he was walking down fifth Avenue in New York and he thought he saw a mannequin move in the window of Bergdorf Goodman. And Mm. so that's like where the whole idea came from. Mm. But again, obviously like there's the idea of Pygmalion and like all these other things, but that's what they mentioned on Wikipedia. Um, and like I said before, it just like it shows you all the fun and dream your dreams come true in a, in a department store, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was really fun to see James Spader in this. He's just really young and really funny. Um, I actually didn't realize until I was researching that he is, like, the hot guy jerk in, um, what was it, Pretty in Pink? Is that what I said it was? Yeah. Which I was like, oh, my God. Uh, he has this, like, uh, moment in the movie, like, a, just a comedic moment where he knocks over a lamp. Mm-hmm. that's really funny. Do you remember this? He's like, mm-hmm. he's like trying to talk to the big boss and fix something. And then he's like, whoa, 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 like knocks over. And it was just like really great physical comedy. And I just don't think of James Spader as a physical comedic actor. Right. I think of him in like, what's that freaking show? The blacklist. The blacklist. Yes. That's what I think of James Spader. Oh, right. Boy. Um, Obviously watching this, I thought of the ways that this movie is indicative of its time that are not good, Uh, right? (laughs) And um, it's basically how we used to write gay characters in general is just like, it's just he's flaming and he's wacky and he has no dimension, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's just, there's no, he's just a 2D character, you know? 
Um, and watching that, I was like, well, it's good to see how far we've come as, as, as a society, at least in terms of like how we write gay characters and perform gay characters. Yeah, know? I think the issue really is, I think that Hollywood's a fun character and it's fine, but there is no other side. There were no other kinds of gay characters displayed in other stories, you know? Mm-hmm. There wasn't a serious one. There wasn't one that was like running a business. They're all wacky best friends. Uh, and that is obviously not how society works. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's something in this movie that I actually wrote down as a note for Jumanji, but it's in both movies. Mm-hmm. So I know it's a little too early to do the intersection. Oh, of the I've got it written down, I'm sure, as well. But it's just the idea in general uh, back then that like the way that we talked about mental health was just so not not healthy. <laughs> yeah. And it and it's something that we we actually talked about in last week's episode um about the way that mental health is discussed in the public eye when we were talking about my chemical romance yeah. and pearl jam. It's like we've come a long way like in in both Jumanji and in Mannequin. It's like you need to see a shrink. Like you're crazy mm. and it's an insult and you need to go to an insane asylum because you're nuts, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's, it's used as an insult, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that luckily today people know that <laughs> mental health is a, is a real medical. It's a part of your body. Issue. Yeah. It's part of everybody. Yeah, exactly. I did like the friendship between Hollywood and the main guy, you know, I, 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 like I said, Hollywood, the sassy gay guy is very problematically written, but he's also really accepting and loving and he's really fun. And he's, he's the one person who's like, you, you love your mannequin girl. Like you do you, I don't judge. And actually there's a, um, there's some fun quotes that I wrote down. One of them was like, he says to the main guy, it's obvious to this country girl that you're an A number one creative freak. Imagine pretending to be a stock boy when you're a major artiste. I am so jealous. <laughs> so he just kind of compliments his like artistry and all that kind of stuff. Overall, the ending of this movie is also super fun. There's mm-hmm. a huge chase scene where they're trying to like basically kill the mannequin. They're mm-hmm. like, this man, the bad guys, the bad guys are trying to find, but they don't know which one it is. So they're just taking all the ma- They steal all the mannequins from the department store and put them through this like shredder machine that just chops them into little bits. And he's running, trying to save it. But the, the bad guys, including his ex-girlfriend, who's like, why does he love a mannequin and not me? You know, they're just, it's so ridiculous. And, Hollywood ends up like helping to keep the cops away by spraying them with a big fire hose. Mm -hmm. And he's just like fire hosing down the bad guys and they all are stumbling over each other. And it's just like a super fun eighties movie ending. You know, the magic of the ending is a little abrupt. Like suddenly it's okay that she's seen by other people. And now she found true love. Like that was like the end of the thing. Like, was that part of the spell? I think so. It was like once you find Drula, like there you'll stay or whatever. Yeah. So it was about her like, is this the person I'm going to stop traveling time for? You know? You know, we we were talking about how like this movie is better than you would think it is. And I think that one of the reasons is it doesn't get 
stopped up in in how the magic works. Like no. you and I are like, wait, hold on, she's from Egypt, you know. <laughs> but the truth is, they're like, well, this is why she's here. Like. It's weird that that's the reason they landed I, on. I could have gone with even less. Yeah. I could have been like, <laughs> there was sure, very the little. mannequin has come to life. And it's like his artistry manifested in a mannequin. You know, like I'm down. Like, is he seeing her or is she real mm-hmm. is like a great question. And I didn't need it to be like, well, I know she's real because she's an ancient she's Egyptian an princess. Egypt. Yeah. You know, like. She's a time traveling Egyptian princess <laughs> who Imba takes over other people's bodies. I mean, yeah, it's, there's actually one line when she's talking about Christopher Columbus. She's like, I told him the world was round and I never saw him again. <laughs> like she's very much like a, it's very, she's written very like Mel Brooksian. Yeah. Like, so what's the deal? I'm a Jewish girl in ancient Egypt. Oh, the the ancient Egypt scene is everyone's Jewish. It's everyone's so like Brooklyn Jewish. It really feels like they were like, this isn't working. Can we get Mel Brooks in here for a moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that is all I have on this. Uh, those are my thoughts. Um, obviously, we can talk more about the intersection between the two movies, yeah. but. Sam, this was your first experience watching Mannequin, learning about this classic. How how do you feel? How'd it hit you? Well, you know, we've already discussed most of it. Of <laughs> like, I was very uh, thrilled by this movie. It was very off the wall and very fun. Um, I think that the stylings and uh, the dance and stuff, I feel like this movie made me like the idea of the 80s more than most of the 80s movies. Um, just like the fun songs, the dancing, like this movie's very stylish. <laughs> um, it's kind of weird that this like rom-com is still centered around this like male character so much. Like it's, right. you know, cause it, it does be feel like, a mo- you know, yeah, it does feel like a movie uh, looking for a more feminine audience and yeah, it's really focused on him and she's just kind of around. <laughs> she's literally like a doll, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I That's lo- how we treat female characters. <laughs> right. Right. You know? Um, and I love like the scenes of like him on the motorcycle with the mannequin on the back yeah. and uh, all the quick changes and stuff like that's really fun um at times i was wondering which one of these is the fish out of water is it her or is it him Mm. (laughs) because like sometimes he's like at odds with his environment in a really big way but it's like but she's the time traveling ancient (laughs) egyptian mannequin come to life you (laughs) know shouldn't she be like what's up with all these things she says like two or three things and then she's like but I guess she's seen a lot of technological advancement over her time traveling. So, you know, maybe right. maybe it does make sense that he's well, the fish out of water. I mean, it just seems like through our discussions, like this could have been written as a completely different movie with a similar premise. Yes. Which is an Egyptian princess wants I to mean, escape. I mean, I'd probably adjust that part. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wants to escape the patriarchal society that she lives in. And in... In, in her wish, she gets her wish and she travels through time and she experiences all of these. And it's a story about her and her adventures and what she learns. And she meets all these famous people throughout time and sees technology. It's just a completely different movie that they could have written about her character. But instead, the movie's about this guy. Right. And knowing that there's a sequel is heartbreaking because it really should have been the prequel. Right. <laughs> yeah. It should have been Kim Cattrall's adventures right. throughout time. Somebody write the prequel to Mannequin. Yeah. And uh, we'll cover it on Gen Gap. Yeah. Other than that, the only other note that hasn't come up yet is I wrote down Chucky the rom-com. <laughs> 
because she's a doll. <laughs> she's a doll uh, where, you know, like ancient voodoo magic has made her come to life. But instead of wielding a kitchen knife and stabbing people, um, she puts on window displays sure. and uh, uses a glider. Yeah, she... What is, is that? What it's called? Like she air hang glides. She hand glides through a mall. Hang glides. Hang, or hand. Hang. Hang. Because they're hanging. It's called hang, hang gliding. Hang glide. <laughs> well, you you know we all have we have to teach each other something. <laughs> and that's mannequin. Mannequin, my friends. That's mannequin. Ten out of ten would watch again. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. All right, let's talk about Jumanji here, the movie for those who seek to find a way to leave their world behind. You'll roll the dice and move your token. Doubles get another turn. The first player to reach the end wins, Rachel. Oh, I thought that was going to rhyme again. I know. It's disappointing, it like... much like the rewatch of 1995's <laughs> uh, Jumanji. All right. This film is starring Robin Williams and is about a cursed board game that causes animals to appear and terrorize the players. Uh, Robin Williams plays Alan Parrish, uh, once a bullied child who's been trapped in Jumanji for 26 years and then is released by Judy and Peter Shepard to start when they start to play their own game of Jumanji. Um, interesting that his last name is Parrish since he, when he plays, perishes into the game itself. Ooh, spooky. So there, there's no goblins or ghosts, but that's a very spooky. Yeah. Uh, gophers is close <laughs> gophers. almost. There are monkeys and they can drive a motorcycle. Now, each <laughs> oh roll God. of the dice causes stampedes, floods, driving monkeys, and all kinds of chaos. All right. Eventually, after having the game stolen by a pelican, a Home Alone-esque scene involving Colonel Mustard at a department store, and a monsoon that takes place within a mansion, the players finish the game and reset things back to the way they should be. Jeez. Right? What an adventure. Um, Some of my favorite parts are... uh, this is weird to say it's my favorite part, but like Judy and Peter, the two uh, main kids in the like 1995 timeline that's going on here, uh, their parents were killed in a skiing accident. But when we see at the very end of the movie, when they've reset things, uh, Robin Williams um, meets the kids' parents who haven't gone on their fateful, lethal Canadian ski accident yet. Um, so they're like, oh, we're thinking about going to Canada and doing some skiing. And they're like, no, right. (laughs) Wait, so they changed time. Okay. So there's kind of some multiple timelines going on in Jumanji. So when the movie opens, uh, a young Alan Parrish and, uh, his friend, I think the babysitter are playing Jumanji, right? Alan Parrish gets sucked into the game Mm -hmm. who will become Robin Williams later. Right. Uh, And the girl gets the bats attack her and she goes out screaming. Yeah. We cut 26 years later uh, when the kids move into the house uh, and discover Jumanji. When they play the game, uh, they roll a five, which causes Robin Williams to come out of Jumanji and back into the real world. Okay. (laughs) But as we discussed, when they finish the game of Jumanji, they reset everything back to the way things should be. So, Robin Williams goes back to when he was a kid 
and he wasn't sucked into Jumanji and the the town didn't fall apart. He goes and he hugs his dad and he goes, oh, I'm so glad you're back. And he goes, it's only been five minutes. And he goes, That's it feels right. like so much longer for me because he resets. So then right. you have to imagine he, in that timeline where everything is fixed, you know, he grows up and then he uh, hires the kids that helped him get out, um, though they don't know that because this is a timeline where they never met. Uh, he hires their dad to work at the shoe factory mm. and avoid their uh, deadly Canadian ski accident. Wow. But most of the movie <laughs> yeah. this is, is such a the small part worst of the movie. CGI you've ever seen. <laughs> yes. It feels like this whole movie, this was like my big takeaway from watching it, was this was a CGI vehicle. Yes. They, they had discovered some technology, and I don't know because I didn't do the research, but this is what it felt like watching. It was like they discovered CGI and what they could do with it, and they were like, let's make a movie about it. It kind of reminds me of like, I tried rewatching Honey, I Shrunk the Kids like somewhat recently. Oh, yeah. And that whole movie, I, I couldn't get through it, but it was like just what can we do with, the effects and let's make a movie about effects. Yeah. I wish that that's what they thought. It feels like the effects were here to make the impossible happen. Yeah. And it wasn't all terrible, but like the monkeys specifically. I think the monkeys are pretty unwatchable. The stampede is pretty bad. Anytime you have a lot of animals moving, I think like the, the, Practical effects of like a lot of the weather stuff. I remember the monsoon looks really good. Um, just like the general chaos uh, of like the town going to crap is really good. But yeah, it's, uh, most of the animals, which are the kind of like creature in this creature feature, uh, are a little disappointing. And I'm, and we're not saying that from like here in 2023, these effects really don't hold up, though they don't. I remember feeling that way as a child, like oh, really? that the monkeys were not right. You know, well, that the, the stampede other, looked bad. On the other side of it, we've talked about, what was it? Lord of the Rings, where that movie had really outdated. Like we watched it 22 years later mm. or more. And it actually seemed like a lot of the, it just seems to hold up the, the fantasy elements. I'm like, this actually looks pretty good. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that movie, I mean, I'm sure Jumanji in the Lord of the Rings trilogy had very different budgets. Different budgets. Um, but also, there was just such an effort made in, I, I think of the movie that does special effects so well, is Jurassic Park. Right. You want to talk about bringing That's the impossible 90s. to life. Yeah. It is four years before this movie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's very limited CGI in Jurassic yeah. Park. So much of it's puppets, animatronics. Right. There are no puppets or animatronics really in this film. It's so funny how like you'd think CGI, since it's computer generated, would be the thing that like withholds the test of time yeah. or stands through the test of time. But it's actually puppetry that wins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there's no, like, new patch for puppets. Like, yeah, you could make them look better, but, like, I don't know. It doesn't rely on pixels. Yeah. Um, But I think the big thing to take away here, uh, what is Jumanji? Jumanji is a movie with Robin Williams, okay? Culturally, this movie was actually only made... Because they got Robin Williams to be in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, what year was it again? 1995. Okay. Now, initially, Robin Williams did not want to take part in it, but they made several rewrites to the script until he said yes. Hmm. Okay? 
And just just to put it in frame of reference here, a Robin Williams movie in the early to mid-90s was a surefire way to ensure a film's success, mm-hmm. okay? Although he did many, like, um, movies that were intended for, like, adult audiences, like The Birdcage, Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams. Um, there's a lot... I'm just going to list a lineup of family movies starring Robin Williams from the 90s. Okay. okay? Wait, can I try to name some? Oh, yeah. Go for it. Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. Aladdin. Yes. <laughs> I'm done. Okay. Hook. Hook. Oh, I love Hook. I mean, Jumanji. Jack. Do you remember Jack? I Yeah. Do you vague, know the premise of Jack? Vaguely. All right. I won't even say it because that might be a future episode. Yeah. And Flubber. Do you remember the film Flubber? Vaguely. These are very Gen Gappy. Like, yes. these are like, you were a kid and I was an adult. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can see just how having this actor in your film would elevate your movie, right? But I actually think that that's kind of a weird choice that they hung it all on Robin Williams, considering that this movie has some of the least wacky Robin Williams moments. Like he's not, other than being like mm. a jungle man. Yeah, he's not silly because it's actually kind of a scary movie. It's not like funny. Yeah, I'm about to get to that. <laughs> but just to touch on this, um, this is why I think Robin Williams is such a strange choice for this. Joe Johnson, the director, said he had reservations over casting Robin Williams because of the actor's reputation for improvisation. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've heard about that. Fearing that he wouldn't adhere to the script, okay? But uh, what I'm reading here is, however, Williams understood that it was a, quote, a tightly structured story... <laughs> And generally filmed the scenes as outlined, though he was allowed to improvise in his scenes with Bob uh, Bonnie Hunt. Um, That's really funny, too, because it's like, maybe the script could have used a little more improvisation. Uh, yeah, not that or good. you're like, oh, I don't know if we need Robin Williams. He might like add too much Robin Williams to it. I'm like, well, then who do you want right. in the film? Right. It seems like you want his name, but you don't actually want what he brings to the table. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is who he is. Right. Like when I think of the Robin Williams performances, honestly, I'm thinking of Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm thinking of Aladdin. I think of Bicentennial Man, but I don't think of uh, Jumanji as like, oh, one of the roles. He's like in the movie, but it's not, his movie, which is a shame because Robin Williams is probably more talented than the structure, the, you know, the, the written word of the script of Jumanji. You know, it's funny. I didn't even mention this when I was talking about other movies that came out in 1987. One of the top movies of that year was Good Morning Vietnam starring uh, Robin Williams. Yeah. And that I feel like they do let him go, even though that that that's a movie that like blends seriousness yes. and comedy. But like, I'm sure they let him go nuts. Oh, even just the good morning. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's a big character guy. Yeah. And other than like him coming out of the jungle, but there's still not a lot of like fun fish out of water stuff. There's no like him like. I guess he's like, I don't know how to drive a car, but like, <laughs> right. there's no like, because te- he's a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's still- in an adult body. Exactly. Exactly. Like Jack. All right. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about how Jumanji was not a critical success. Aww. Okay. Jumanji was the 32nd highest grossing movie of 1995. Okay. 14 spots behind Dumb and Dumber and one spot above the Brady Bunch movie. <laughs> 
Uh, Jumanji was nominated, though, for a Kids' Choice Award for their favorite movie actor, obviously Robin Williams, Mm -hmm. but lost to another force of nature comedian acting alongside animals. Rachel, can you guess it? God. Oh, was it like Air Bud or something that we've done, a Space Jam or something we've done on the show? No, there's no acting alongside animals in Space Jam well, other than the animated. <laughs> Air I guess, yeah, an Air Bud. No, it was Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura oh, when Nature Calls. Pet. Oh, not Pet Detective. It was the sequel okay. in 1995. Or 96 is when the awards came out because it came out at the end of 95. Uh, Roger Ebert rated this film one and a half out of four stars criticizing its reliance on special effects to convey its story, which he felt was lacking, which I disagree, Roger. I don't think the story, Roger. well, maybe some explanation was lacking, but it was like, there's these different timelines and like there's multiple generations. Um, I think it was high concept enough. Though uh, Ebert questioned the decision to rate the film PG rather than PG-13 as he felt young children would be traumatized by yeah. much of the film's imagery, which he said... Uh, made the film as appropriate for smaller children as Jaws. Hmm. Well, I don't know if I would go that far, but I did write down in my notes, who is this movie for? Because when we were watching it, I was saying, this is pretty scary, especially for kids. But I think one thing that I've learned from our podcast, as well as listening to other nostalgia podcasts, is that that bar of what is appropriate for children has really changed over the years. And like when we were kids, like Goonies was made for kids and there's like swears and they like, they put chunks hand in a blender, you know, and Mm. that it was like scary and it was, and it was for kids, you know, and these days like that just wouldn't fly. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, And the thing that uh, Roger Ebert specifically cited that I remember as a kid, as like Jumanji is scary or there's like bad feels in Jumanji uh, was when Peter, the little boy turns into a monkey. Oh, Roger Ebert said he looked like a wolf man with a hairy snout and wicked jaws (laughs) and was likely to scare children. But for me, it was when Robin Williams yelled at him when he was in monkey form and the kid cries. Oh, And I didn't understand uh, only watching the movie now. Are you like, oh, because Robin Williams is a kid. And he's like a kid who's had to rely on his own yeah. survival skills for 26 years to stay alive in the jungle. Right. It's he's a little not, too nuanced for children. Right. I just saw an adult yelling at a child and it did not, I did not like that, you know. Right. So, Jumanji, indicative of its time, I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Right? Bad CGI, family-friendly Robin Williams movie mm-hmm. with a commercial tie-in. Mm-hmm. and cultural appropriation <laughs> okay personally as a kid i loved this movie i remembered loving this movie and i'm kind of disappointed upon the rewatch here <laughs> um, because it had two things i love rachel <laughs> animals and board games i know i like, love board games that's like my whole thing you. i, I know. know this movie is about a board game that makes animals appear i mean who wouldn't love it I dreamed of getting to play Jumanji, actually, you know, as a kid. I wanted to, you see the movie, you want to play. If only it was real. Oh, so that is that was one of my questions that I had for you, mm-hmm. which is, I, was this movie based on a real board game? This movie was based on a book, actually. 
and took oh. several liberties from the book. Though the person who wrote the book said that uh, they approved the idea of the changes that they made. Hmm. That it held the same spiritual chaos that uh, was in the film. Okay. However, one day I found a real Jumanji game. What? I was eight or nine. I went over to my friend Max's house, and on his shelf there it was. An actual Jumanji game. Sure, the box was cardboard and not made of wood, and the pieces didn't move on their own. (laughs) But surely it made animals really appear, right, Max? No. No. Aw. Just basically like any other old classic board game where you roll a die and you move that many spaces (laughs) and then you read a card. However, I do have to say I love any board game that ends with you having to say the name of the game, <laughs> like Jenga. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Uno. Uno. Yeah, yeah. Um, wait. So that means that they did after the success of the movie, they made a board game. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Milton Bradley, I believe, or Hasbro, one of those made sure. a mass market game, and actually there was a re-release of a Jumanji game, a deluxe version that did have the wooden. A box that opened up and actually had a digital, like, uh, half crystal ball or whatever in the middle that, like, made the words appear like uh, like they did in the movie. Cool. So that happened, uh, like, in 2018. <laughs> um, so my dream almost happened, but still no real animals. I also remember thinking that this movie was funnier than it was. <laughs> Because <laughs> it had Robin Williams, I think I just associated it with it being a funny movie, and it's not particularly funny. Did you watch this as a child? Like many, when? many times. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I loved. I mean, I do feel like it is a scary movie for kids. Like, right. And I mean that in a good way. Like, which so was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Right. Like these were like, oh, how can we make like horror movies that are child friendly? Which yeah. I think is cool like, as a genre. I think is kind of cool. Yeah. I'm also really sensitive to the phrase, who is this for? I've written many musicals I know, and I feel like I every time I get asked, who is it for? And I just feel like whenever that's asked, I'm like, now I like this thing because right. I'm like, who is it for? Well, it's for me. I, I don't mind. It's for me. Things. I made it. Shut up. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, and I'd say I remember the CGI looking bad even for then. Now, obviously, there has been a lot of material to come out of Jumanji, which is crazy because, again, it is the 32nd highest grossing movie of 1995 and yet has a reboot, a sequel to that reboot, and a spinoff called Zathura, which is essentially um, the same movie but in space. Hmm. That's what happens. And even though this movie is flawed, monkey face boy being yelled at by Robin Williams and all, when I watch it, it still makes me feel like a kid. But we like to do this, Rachel. How good is this movie versus is it just nostalgia that's bringing you to this movie? I'm going to say this one's 85% nostalgia. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Rachel, what did you think of Jumanji? Um... Yeah, I thought it was going to be better than it was. Like, similar to Mannequin, I thought Mannequin was going to be worse, and then it was better. Um, I thought it was fine. I there was some. I was surprised that Kirsten Dunst was in it. She yes. plays, like, one of the lead little kids. Yeah. And I so I was like, whoa, she's so young. A, I didn't realize this was so long ago. B, I didn't realize how long Kirsten Dunst had been acting. Right. It's five years before Bring It On. Whoa! It's but six she looks years like before Spider Man. Like, yeah, yeah. 
I whoa. Well, I guess she was obviously like an older kid playing a younger kid. She yeah. Was, I mean, how old was she when this was? That's a good Who question. Knows? I don't have that on um, here, but I do have that the little boy, her little brother, was only like three months younger than her mm, or something. Yeah, like he that. just looked little. Yeah. Um, my main thoughts. I mean, you covered a lot of what I thought. I um. I wrote down a couple like tropes that I witnessed. Mm-hmm. So like we talk about so many eighties and nineties like movies on this podcast. So obviously in the beginning it's like kids are getting bullied. That's yeah. always the protag, right? Yeah. The protagonist. Um, and so in the beginning of this movie, when um, he's a little boy, when Robin Williams is a little kid, he's getting bullied. So, you know, he's going to be the protagonist. Mm-hmm. But then I wrote down, whoa, this is the first movie of this time period that I saw where the protagonist child has two rich parents. I was like, that's new. Yeah. And then I wrote, and cut to the 90s. Cut to the 90s. Everyone's dead. I spoke too soon. Because there's two different storylines. It's like Robin Williams is a kid. He gets sucked into the game. Um, but when he's a kid, he is bullied, but he has two parents right. and they're well off, Yeah, which is unusual for an 80s or a 90s right. movie. But then when you cut to whatever, how many years later, Kristen Dunst character mm. and her brother, their parents are dead. And yeah. so I'm like, well, there we have it. Yeah. We had to have that trope in yeah, here somewhere. Yeah, they can't both be dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they are because 26 years later, um, his parents have passed on. Though there's this like kind of like vagrant who's in his dad's office that he talks to. Yeah. And it seems like that was, that's his dad. But then the next scene they see right. him, like he sees the gravestone. Right. And it's like, well, did he like kind of like fake his death to like move on from that life? I forgot about that. It that kind seems of, confusing. It feels like that is his dad. Right. But his, it's the actor. It's not the actor who plays his dad, and the actor who plays like his dad actually plays the the hunter, the Colonel Mustard type character oh. in the movie. Which is, I saw a lot of people liken that to Peter Pan, which weirdly has this weird tie-in because uh, Robin mm. Williams was in Hook. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in Peter Pan, the actor who plays the dad also plays Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that's more of a Wizard of Oz trope <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> yeah, It's more Elmira Gulch than it is Peter Pan. The only other two things I have written down here that we haven't covered are... Well, I already talked about how like everyone was like, you're crazy. And it's like a threat to like send someone to a therapist. Um, But uh, I wrote down that I did see new Manji, as you refer to it. The like one with the rock, because I used to always get my nails done in the salon. (laughs) I get my pedicures done at the salon in Brooklyn that was always showing like random movies. And I, I would just watch the movies while I was getting my my nails done. And it was always a sequel. They never, like, I, it, it was like, they would never show just, like, Jumaji. It was always, like, Jumaji 2. Or, mm-hmm. like, what was another? It was always the second one of mm-hmm. whatever it was. Um, Bad Moms 2 or whatever. Uh, so I did see that, and I thought it was so disturbing because it was, like, in that version of the movie, or, yeah, in that version of the movie, they get sucked into the game versus the game coming into the real life. Right. So it was, like, the opposite. Um, but the other thing that I wrote down that I had to mention was there's this moment in the movie. So as, as we all know, Sam is, 
uh, a huge fan of board games. Yes. In fact, he has another podcast called... What's your podcast called? <laughs> He's such a supportive partner. It's called Woodland War Machine. Woodland War Machine. It's about a very specific board game. So if you don't know anything about the board game route... You won't be interested in the podcast. Yeah. But like just to show how into board game Sam is, like he has another podcast about a board game and his job is working with board games, right? And so it's just funny. We're watching this movie that is about a board game. And in it, the little girl, they're like, how do you play? And they're like, you just roll and you do what it says. And you move that many spaces. And the little girl in the movie goes, well, there's not that much to the game. And Sam goes, yeah. Like out loud, <laughs> you're watching and you went, yeah. Because Sam doesn't like like boring rules for a game where it's like, you just roll and go. That's the whole thing. This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you don't make any choices in Jumanji. I think I kept getting frustrated both. <laughs> <laughs> from a game design perspective of Jumanji, but also the like movie rules around Jumanji, because what they had to do was finish the game. Just roll the dang dice again. Like, well, it's scary. What they're like? Oh, there's a lion. It's like okay, but if you ro- keep rolling, if everyone just keeps passing the dice and rolling, yeah. like we can. There'll be a bunch of threats, but eventually we'll get past it. I feel it. like that is what happens at the end. The end is kind of exciting when it's like they're sucked into the floor and they're like, you have to keep rolling the dice. Yes. Roll it with your mouth. Like, yeah, if you don't roll fun. the dice, like, we won't finish the game. So. Yeah. And like how he, uh, you know, the Colonel Mustard type characters got him right there. He's got his sights on him. He's pointing the gun and he, you know, to surrender, he opens his hands oh, and, and the, the dice. dice fall. And then he says, Jumanji, so that when the bullet Oh. is shot it like disintegrates as it gets there like the end of the movie is yeah. exciting for and he's sure. like uno <laughs> uh rachel do you have a, a favorite part or a most memorable part of the movie i think that ending part with the ending was pretty good yeah. like that like i just said how they had to race to the finish to finish the game and then i like how it undid it unraveled time yeah that yeah. was cool i think so too um uh scariest animal Oh, God. I was really afraid this is not an animal. It wasn't just animals. I was really no. afraid of the vines that yes. were, like, grabbing their body and, like, pulling them down. That yeah. was so scary. Yeah, yeah. I thought you would go those big old mosquitoes. Um, oh, God. Yeah. I do hate, like, robes of insects. Yeah. It really freaks me out. All right. That's all I got for Jumanji. Let's talk about a little bit of the intersection between these two. Mm -hmm. Here's what I got, Rachel. These movies both rely on clumsy appropriation of African curses and magic. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's apt. (laughs) Uh, I say that they have high concepts, uh, which cause many of the characters to say things like, it's real, you gotta believe me. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's all I got for the intersection. That sounds good. And I have to ask you a question. Yeah. When I said, oh yeah, Jumanji, and you're like, perfect, I got Mannequin. Why? <laughs> I don't know if I did say I don't yeah, you do have this memory that I was like, I've got it. I don't know why. I think it's like the idea of like something coming alive, yeah, right? I guess like it's so. like a mannequin coming alive and it's like a board game coming alive, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, in the intro of this episode, you said it I feel like you said it really well. You were like a board game comes alive. I don't know. You nailed it earlier. Rewind yeah. and listen to it. And just <laughs> fucking shut up, people. Um, these movies are obviously indicative of their time. My, you said yours was a critical success. 
I got, or like a box office success. Yeah. Like, well, it made be, money. Made money. I just yeah. don't know if that's right. Like, did was it made fun? I mean, it's hard to say. Like the review, it's not. Yeah, let's. Okay, yeah. Uh, let's get Denise on this. Denise, how much of a critical <laughs> success was Mannequin? We heard like a number amount, but I don't know what that is like in relation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Denise, can you can you get on that? Denise? Okay. <laughs> it turns out that Mannequin was the 21st highest grossing film of 1987. 21st? That okay. is... 14 spots higher than The Princess Bride. That is so crazy. And one step lower than A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Okay, as always, Denise, we're very worried about your health. You we sound can't terrible. provide you health care. You might need to find other yeah. employment, Denise. Yeah, this is, you'd sound bad. But thank you for that research. Thank you. Very key. All right. Well, that's all we got for these two films. But as always... We have a special thing that some people wear, but you shouldn't because it's made out of temporal magic. It's the Hat of Time. Ooh, it's floating towards you, babe. Reach your hand in. Now, for those who don't know, the Hat of Time is a mystical hat containing all things nostalgia, specifically from 1996 to 2008, a.k.a. the Generation Gap. But when you dip your hand into the hat of time, it will show you something from your past. Ooh, what do we got? Okay, I'm going to reach in here. Wow. It's weird that people were able to afford a house on one person's income. This is your favorite. All right, here we go. And I'm pulling out (laughs) Steve Irwin's death. Ooh, Steve Irwin. (laughs) Classic. Yeah, you're excited the about Hunter. I mean, I'm not, I'm not excited that he died, but I am kind of, that is a fun one to talk about. All right. My memory is that Steve Irwin's death is 2004 or 2005. Uh, I know that it was later uh, because I remember I was dating Dana Bine at the time and he was like really emotionally sad about it. Mm-hmm. Unless I just, talked about it with him at the time anyway my guess would be 2006 or 7 it is 2006 yeah september 4th um obviously i grew up watching a ton of crocodile hunter uh loved him loved all those nature shows and he was the king of him yeah for anyone who doesn't know yeah the croc hunter he was this guy steve Irwin. he had a show on probably the discovery channel is my guess animal planet discovery channel yeah and he was like he was just this like great guy he was this australian zookeeper who uh would teach people about animals but specifically was known as the crocodile hunter uh because of how he interacted with crocodiles i mean he would like literally like climb in the swamp and just grab one and i think what he was known for was like he'd just be like this is the most venomous snake in the world and then he'd just pick it up and he and he would be like look at this beaut like even though it was the most venomous scary animal he'd be like this thing's gorgeous yeah and he'd be like 
it is gorgeous. Like, yeah. Yeah. And just like a design of nature. He just really appreciated and loved animals. Yeah. Um, he was married uh, uh, to the, the woman he was married to lived and was from Eugene, Oregon too. Oh, so I, really? I felt like I had a very personal connection. Terry with, Irwin. Yeah. Terry because Irwin. then like she and his and their kids went on to like continue his legacy. Oh yeah. I still think there's like a zoo uh, that they run. I know his yeah. kid is like a little mini Steve Irwin. Yeah. Where he picks up crazy animals. Yeah. And stuff. Bindi Irwin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. So I, my main memory with the crocodile hunter dying uh, and it was just so, I just remember it was so crazy because he was someone who easily tackled crocodiles and then was taken down by a stingray a stingray which is very rare he was the second person ever recorded to die from a stingray that is not second yeah it's just like so weird it, it just one of those freak accidents you know and where i just it, like, remember... had to be a certain angle a certain thing it <sighs> I just remember my boyfriend at the time, Dana Bine, who I'm still friends with. He was so upset, like very emotionally moved because the crack, the crack hunter really was just like such a positive celebrity. Right. You know, and uh, and Dana loved animals and loved the show. And so my main association is just seeing that through his eyes. I do remember watching it on TV when it was announced that he was that he had died. Yeah. yeah, I was in high school at the time, and I just remember all of our peers were just like, what? Yeah. Like, it was, like, not cool, you know? Like, everyone had these really fond memories of, yeah. of him from the show. It's like, yeah, he's not a person who's controversial in any way. Yeah. There's no two ways to feel about it. It's like, he's a goof that handles animals and loves animals. And like, even though people had social media in 2006, this was before it was used the way that it is today. So yes. it wasn't like people were like posting about like right. funny enough. I remember when Robin Williams died right, and like right. everyone was posting on social media right. about their relationship to his work. Right. Whereas this was, this predates that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Great episode. Mannequin meets Jumanji. The, the two things that you could only hope would be in the same episode, and we granted that wish for you. That's right. And if you started this podcast, I'm glad you did, but you have to finish it. Otherwise, all the terrible things that this podcast has caused will continue to haunt your life. Yeah, or maybe you'll inhabit the body of a time-traveling Egyptian princess and get to experience a lot of really fun stuff. Yep, and just like the end of the game, I'm just going to say, same in Rachel's generation gap. Uno. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sam and Rachel's Generation Gap. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sam and Rachel Comedy. And if you like the show, please rate us highly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sam and Rachel's Generation Gap is produced by Sam DeRose and Rachel Rosenthal with editing from Jack Barton. Our music is by Douglas Wydick and Sweet Tea Studios. Our artwork is by Aaron Maybe Designs. And the snuggles are provided by Rosie the Galga. Bye.